Good morning, everyone. Great to see you and a privilege to be together again. Uh, whether it's uh, a lot or a little here in the class or a lot and a little out there in Zoom land, it's, uh, it's a privilege to gather for the purpose of worship and also to, um, to open God's Word together. What a crazy week we have had in the world, a crazy couple of weeks. It's um, been a great reminder to me how the world screams at us to get our attention. Whether it's marketing emails in our inbox or billboards on the highway or uh, commercials that interrupt our football games. And then there's the news. Everything in this world seems hell-bent, literally, on getting our attention and focusing that attention on the interests of the world. There's nothing that I've seen once I turn on the, uh, the television, certainly, unless you target a specific channel, or uh, news websites, unless you target specific websites that uh, focus on a religious slant, you're not going to get much that talks about our walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, everything that goes on in the current events of our world is filtered through uh, a secular filter and a secular mindset. The night Jesus was arrested, he prayed that the Father would protect his disciples. Remember his prayer? He prayed some wonderful things there in Jerusalem. One of the things he prayed was that his disciples would be in the world, but not of the world. That is a tough assignment, because all we've known is the world. That's all we've known. We're to be in it, but not of it. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told them not to associate with immoral people, but then he quickly qualified it and meant, he said, but I don't mean the immoral people of the world, because he'd have to leave the world. He meant Christians that weren't walking the walk. It's impossible to get out of the world that we live in, and the Lord has not called us to get out of it. But in the midst of it, the world screams to get our attention because it wants our attention, because it wants our devotion. And that is the challenge. Even our Lord Christ, the model of all things right, had to push back against the screams of his world. You think about the pressure that Jesus faced during the time of his ministry. The demands on him were constant. The needs that he faced were overwhelming. The expectations that he faced from others were unrealistic. And yet he was able to keep first things first. How in the world did Jesus do it? What was his secret? One man said it this way. He writes, I often think a life is like a day. It goes by so fast. If I am so careless with my days, how can I be careful with my life? I know that somehow I have not fully come to believe that urgent things can wait until I attend to what is truly important. It finally boils down to a question of deep and strong conviction. Once I am truly convinced that preparing the heart is more important than preparing the Christmas tree, I will be a lot less frustrated at the end of the day. 
Let's look together in the scriptures at the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. It's the third to last book in the Old Testament, which is a big clue that we're getting toward the end of the Old Testament. We've already done Malachi, so uh, we've only got one more lesson in our series here on the, uh, as we take a, a single lesson from each book of the Bible, we've only got this time and next time focusing on the, the Old Testament. And these last three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are what we often call the post-exile or the post-exilic prophets because they were written to the Jews returning to the land. The Jews had come back into the land. In fact, if you're there at the book of Haggai, You'll notice in the very first verse, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Zerubbabel. It's been a while since we've heard that name. But you remember back in the book of Ezra, when we were way back there in the historical books, we talked about the fact that there were three returns to the land after the exile with three purposes. The first under Ezra rebuilt the people. The next one under Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. And the final one under Nehemiah rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. And so here we are with the name Zerubbabel. And you should have a cross-reference there in verse 1 to the book of Ezra. And we won't turn there, but if you were to look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, you would see Haggai's name mentioned. So Haggai's name is mentioned there in Ezra in the time of Zerubbabel. And we've got Zerubbabel's name mentioned here, the first verse of the book of Haggai. They were contemporaries, and they were both pushing in the same direction, or both urging the people in the same direction, and that is to rebuild the temple. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you read through the scriptures, sometimes there's some stuff that sort of seems repetitious. In the Gospels, we sort of you know, uh, allow for it because, hey, it's Jesus, you know. We, we will read all we want about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, great. Well, if there was a fifth Gospel, we'd love that even more. We don't mind the repeat material. But somehow when we get to First and Second Chronicles, it's like, ah, I've read this already. But the thing is, First and Second Chronicles were the last books, a really book, that was written in the Old Testament, and it was written to the returning Jews about the time, about all the events that happened prior to the exile, but it had a particular slant. It had a, a focus that was different than, than the historical books, uh, Samuel and Kings. Samuel and Kings basically talked about all the bad stuff that happened that sort of justified the exile. And then after the exile, now we've got a version of the history that has a much more positive slant. It focuses on primarily the kings of the south of Judah, and primarily from those kings, uh, the kings that had a passion for the temple. Why would that be an emphasis? Because God wanted the temple rebuilt when they went back into the land. The, the uh, Babylonians, of course, had torn it down. So Haggai's purpose and Zerubbabel's purpose was to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. This was the, uh, this was the priority. So we've read verse 1. Let's um, look at verse 2 and we'll see the problem. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come 
even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Very simple. God's people say, uh, you know, I know Zerubbabel, Haggai, you're both saying we should rebuild the temple, but the time has not come to do that. This, this isn't a good time to do it. The people were saying the time's not right because they had opposition. They had red tape. They had political turmoil. They had a shortage of resources, just like we do today. It's much, much the same. And all of this seemed to sort of justify, in the people's mind, stopping the work and not rebuilding the temple. We'll just wait for a more favorable time. But look at God's response to that. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? The word that is translated here, paneled houses, refers to some kind of an overlay, probably of wood, which is why we get the translation paneling. And basically, the, uh, the emphasis here is on priority. You, the Lord says, look, you, you're given plenty of time to the, uh, to the priority of paneling your houses, but you're not giving priority to rebuilding the temple. Jesus would later say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometimes we get that backwards. We say, where the heart is, there your treasure will be. But Jesus is saying, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. God saw through their excuse and went straight to the issue. The priority of personal interest for them was more important than the priority of building God's house. Their houses are more important than his house. And the, the use of the word house there is intended to show the, the contrast of priority. I like um, Time Magazine quoted a mountaineer named Tom Whitaker. And I like his quote, not because I agree with it, but because a few people have the guts to be this honest. Uh, Whitaker said, one of the things that really attracts me about mountaineering is its total pointlessness. So I've dedicated my life to it. A lot of people have, haven't they? Not to mountaineering, but you fill in the blank of what is pointless compared to the things of God. Blaise Pascal wrote, The sensibility of man to trifles and his insensibility to great things indicates a strange inversion. Uh, Goethe wrote, Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. How easy it is for us to get those upside down, isn't it? Things which matter most must, must never be at the mercy of the, of the things that matter least. So we've got to decide what's the first thing in our life. I hope that you've come to the place in your life where you realize that uh, no matter what you do, no matter all the good things that you do, it's not enough to earn your way. In Wayne is muted. Wayne is muted. All right. Well, I guess I'll talk until I get a thumbs up that I'm not muted. Good now? Yeah, it's good. All right. So I guess when you mute everybody, that includes me. <laughs> 
Good. Well, I'm glad we unmuted it right as I was about to share the good news of the gospel. That's a good time to be unmuted. Everything prior to this probably didn't need to be said. So I, I hope that you've come to the place in your life where you realize that no matter what good things you've done, it can't outweigh the bad things you've done. You can't take one and replace it with the other. And even if you've just done one bad thing, it's enough to offend the holiness of our Father God, who is absolutely holy and who can't abide any sin in his presence. Well, the good news, of course, is that he sent his son, Christ, his son, Jesus Christ, to die and to pay the penalty for that sin. So that if you have sinned, and you have sinned, just like I have, but faith in Christ removes that. If there's ever a priority in life, that's priority one, is to understand that truth and then to believe that, to apply that truth into your life. And for those of us who have believed that, there are other things that you might call priorities or first things. To keep first things first uh, it would include our personal relationship with God. It would include our personal relationship with our family, as well as providing for our family. And then third, our personal involvement in the Great Commission, wherever God has placed us and however God has gifted us. That's pretty simple, pretty simple list of priorities. Now, we may decide we have other things on that list, but as a believer, these must be on that list. Personal relationship with God, personal relationship with family, and a personal involvement in the Great Commission. As probably nobody, in fact, I know for a fact, there's nobody in this room and there's probably nobody out there that would say, that would disagree with these priorities. The challenge, of course, is the same as in Haggai's time. I don't think anybody in Haggai's time would have said, you know what, we don't need to rebuild the temple. What they said was, this isn't the best time to do it. We, well, we need to wait on it. And the problem they faced is the same problem we face. There's a principle that we can get from their complaint and God's reaction to it. And here's the principle. We've got three that we'll work our way through in this chapter. And here's the first one. The time will never be just right for putting first things first. The time will never be just right for putting first things first. If we are waiting for the world to hand us circumstances that make our Christian life convenient, we will be waiting all our lives and never grow in Christ. We have to push against the culture, not go with the flow. Because the culture is definitely not going to be an assistance. Remember, the culture is screaming at us every way it can to get our attention in order to get our devotion. The time will never be just right for putting first things first. And we've all done it. We have all fallen for the lie that will say, you know what, I just don't have time today or this week or this month or whatever to devote to spending time with the Lord in his word. Things are busy. Things are crazy busy right now. Right now. The trouble is right now is always right now. Have you noticed? I love that song from the musical Annie, you know, where she says, the sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow, and then the chorus, tomorrow, tomorrow, you're always a day away. Does that ever strike you strange? Because if tomorrow is always a day away, then why are we glad about it? It never comes. 
What we're singing about, what we're hoping for, never arrives. And that is the truth of this text. The time is never going to be just right for putting all first things first. We can't wait for the promotion to come. We can't wait for the project to be done. We can't wait for COVID to be over before we start putting first things first because we've been telling ourselves this for years, haven't we? There's always something that steps in front of, potentially, our walk with Christ. Always. We can't wait for the distraction to be gone because when we do, when today's distraction is gone, tomorrow's got another one waiting. So what happens when we, like Israel in the time of Haggai, don't put first things first? Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put them into a purse with holes. The phrase there in verse 5, consider your ways. My, uh, my, my margin says, set your heart on your ways, which is the, the literal translation. To set your heart on something means to ponder it or to consider it. I mean, it's a, it's a fine translation. But understand the more literal rendering is to set your heart on your ways or even more literally, set it on your roads, what you're walking on. To set your heart, consider the path you're taking. Consider your ways, but set your heart on your roads. Look at your steps, because the step that you're taking, this small step that doesn't seem like a big deal, is the first of many in a certain direction. Think about a, an angle, when you've got a, an angle that uh, just here at the, what do you call that connection here, the, the vertex. vertex Consider that that point there is not much. I mean, that little bitty bit is not much. But once time goes on, that angle ends up getting wider and wider. And it's the same with our walk with Christ. The time is never going to be right for putting first things first. If we're waiting on the world, and may I also say, if we're waiting on the church to hand us the, uh, the easy road to a walk with Christ, it's never going to come. Now, the, the church, obviously, is a much more of an ally, but we can be just as crazy busy here as we can in, uh, in, in the rest of our lives. God says, consider your ways, consider the road you're walking on, and the implications, he says in verse 6, is kind of a stinging rebuke. He says, you work hard, but you don't have anything to show for it. You eat, but it's not enough. You drink, but it's not enough. You put on clothing, but it's not enough. You earn money, and it's not enough. These things, God says, all basically are saying the same thing. Your efforts by yourself are not enough. Your efforts apart from your priorities on, with me are not enough. You've set aside the first things to gain nothing, to gain futility. And here's a, a principle, and it's kind of a painful principle because we learn it the hard way, and it's the second one. That is, putting first things last in order to get ahead actually puts us behind. 
to putting first things last in order to get ahead actually puts us behind. And again, we've all done it. We've all said, you know what? This urgent project or this urgent whatever is, needs to step in front of my relationship with God today. Whether it's time in the Word, time in prayer, whatever it is that is nurturing your walk with Christ. That's always going to be there. And when we say we're going to put first things first, we are actually, instead of taking a step forward, we're taking a step backwards. USA Today asked Americans whether they would work an 80-hour work week for several years if there was a large financial payoff at the end of it. 54% said they would not do it, but 46% said they would. Now, that's basically about half, isn't it? That sort of doesn't sound surprising until you think about it. An 80-hour work week for a financial payoff. This, that's seductive because you think, you know, only three, three four years? I, I could do three four years. It'd be worth it. But what happens in that three or four years, you keep taking steps back. Other things have to go so that that can be priority. And what goes are the big three that we said shouldn't go. Our personal relationship with God, our personal relationship with family, and our personal involvement in the Great Commission. Those have to happen if we're going to be faithful to Christ. Making a ton of money and working 80 hours a week doesn't have to happen. In fact, it shouldn't if it threatens those big three. Haggai reminds us that there's no satisfaction. In fact, God thwarts it. God thwarts the satisfaction because he wants to let you know, as a believer, this isn't where, what you're supposed to seek. Notice it says that God did it. Um, if you look at, um, uh, let's see, verse 9, we'll kind of jump ahead for a second. He says, verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. You see, God is the one who frustrates the misguided and uh, the, the believer who has priorities out of whack. I don't know how many times I've, when I, especially when I was in the corporate nonprofit world, I remember the many times seeing uh, in, 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 in examples of people that would say, you know, we're going to sacrifice for our family, when in the reality was we were sacrificing family uh, for this uh, other, other priority. And it's very tempting to do that. Max Licato once wrote, he said, undefined priorities are at the root of much of our success or failure and frustration. Undefined priorities. So instead of putting first things last, God says, look, put first things first. Verse 7, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Same, exact same phrase again. Put your heart on your roads. Consider your ways. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. God is saying, look, I frustrate your effort elsewhere because I want you to know that's not what I want you to pursue. I want you to pursue me. I see the principle here, and this is sort of a bonus principle. It's not really the, the third one, but we can call it maybe a bonus. But, boy, this is true. In fact, I'd almost say if you get nothing else out of the whole talk, the whole message, get this, because this is a principle that will carry you through a lot of life. And it's simply this. The quality of your spiritual life is the quality of your life. The quality of your spiritual life is the quality of your life. If you have a solid walk with Jesus Christ, anything can come down the road. And the Lord is going to help you walk through it. But if we have set Christ on the back burner so that we can chase whatever for six months or years of time, then all of a sudden we aren't prepared for the crisis. I've been thinking a lot about that this week. In fact, I was thinking about it yesterday. I made a fire. I was sitting there by the fireplace. As I was watching the fire burn, you know, when you, when you build a fire and you get it going and uh, it starts burning all by itself, I mean, you could go, assuming it wouldn't burn you, you could go stand on the wood. It, no problem. But you give it a little more time and it crumbles on its own. It crumbles under its own weight. And it was neat to just kind of sit there and look at the fire and go, you know, all it takes is time. And the natural outworking of burning reduces that strong wood to ashes. It's a great metaphor, but it's only one of many. The Bible gives us metaphors of the sluggard. You know, the sluggard in Proverbs, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. It's just a little, no big deal. But the proverb goes on and says, and then boom, poverty hits you. Like the slugger didn't wake up that day and say, you know what, poverty, that's what I'm after today. But a little compromise added to a little compromise ends up to be a lot. It ends up to be a lot. Um, Paul uses the, the metaphor of leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, Jesus said, uh, he who is faithful with a very little thing will be faithful in much. The examples are all over the Bible that little things matter to God because little things, like the angle that we were talking about, end up being big things. And so when Haggai says, look, you, you're giving priority to things that don't matter. Go up to the forest, get wood, bring it down, and build my house because I am going to frustrate your efforts elsewhere. If your emphasis in life as a believer is not the spiritual life, then your emphasis is in the wrong area. The quality of your spiritual life is the quality of your entire life. So look at verse 7 and 8 again. We, are, we read through that, but there's something there we need to emphasize. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, and then notice this. Here is the purpose, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. The two purposes there, go and be obedient 
Do what I'm asking you to do, and here's the motivation, here's the result. Number one, I'll be pleased. And second, I'll be glorified. When we, you know, obviously we're not building a temple today, but you can take the timeless truth from this very clearly, that there is something that is not convenient, not the right time in our spiritual lives, whatever, whatever, however you want to fill in the blank. But if we know that it is the obedient path, we have this principle here from God that he is pleased with it, and it gives him glory. And boy, that can do a lot on the inside when you're struggling with what's on the outside. He gives two reasons that I'll be pleased and I'll be glorified. So here's the final principle. Putting first things first pleases and glorifies God. And it benefits us. It pleases and glorifies God and benefits us. Putting first things first pleases and glorifies God and it benefits us. The Apostle Paul wrote um, in the New Testament, he said, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Our primary purpose in putting our priorities, getting our priorities in line and making the spiritual life the priority of our life is not just for what we get out of it. We get a lot out of it, but it's not just for that. The primary purpose is that it pleases God and it gives glory to God. When we know that the spiritual world, that the, that the angels, the demons, and God the Father, the Trinity, is observing our lives. I mean, even when we're alone, we're not alone. There is an audience. And we are giving an opportunity for God to be pleased and for God to get glory. Well, immediately, we're told that they respond. Uh, verse 12, we're told, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Notice the response. You've got this whole list of people, and then it says, They obeyed. They showed reverence for the Lord. So, not a big surprise, look at God's response, verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you. How would you like the Lord God to come up and say, Jim, I am with you? Right after you made the difficult choice to be obedient, when prior to this, you had said, you know what? Here's all the reasons that I need to set this priority, God's priority, aside. And I'm going to focus on something else just for a little while. We'll get back to that. And God says, no, let's put first things first. And as soon as you do that, notice immediately it was the very next verse. God sends his prophet to the people to say, way to go. I am with you. Not only is he with them, look at verse 14. The spirit of the Lord, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of, and then he lists the same people again, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came out and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. 
If you compare verse 15 there with verse 1, this is 23 days later. So it took three weeks, basically, to get to this point, from the beginning of the conversation now to their final, you know what, maybe we should do this. It took three weeks. You see, when you decide to buck the culture and to go against the selfish ambitions that we have in our hearts, God is pleased, God is glorified, God affirms. Not only that, he strengthens you spiritually and he gives empowerment to continue. There is obedience, there is affirmation, and there is empowerment. And that has not changed for us even in the Christian dispensation. And that's good news. I, uh, I've not read Jules Verne's novel, The Mysterious Island, but I've heard about parts of it, and there's this part of it that I've heard about that I thought was a very great illustration of, of what Haggai's teaching today. Um, there are five men who escape a Civil War prison camp with a hot air balloon back in Civil War. How'd you like to fly in a, civil, a hot air balloon built during the Civil War? Well, these uh, five men figured it was worth a chance, so they escaped a prison camp in a hot air balloon, but they had no way to heat the air. So they're escaped, they're gone, yay, and then they start sinking into the ocean. And so, of course, they start jettisoning things to make the, the balloon lighter and lighter, and the balloon rises, and of course, it's this, you can see where it's going. I mean, nothing's going to get hotter, that balloon's going to get lower, unless the balloon gets lighter. And so they begin jettisoning more and more and more, and of course, weapons they throw over, shoes, clothes, food, and finally they decide to cut away the basket that they were standing on and just hang on to the ropes. And uh, just in time, they see land, and they were able to uh, finally drop from the balloon and be saved. But anyway, I heard about that story and thought, well, that's such an obvious connection that the very thing, ultimately, that they were standing on, the basket, they had to cut away in order to save their lives. The necessities that they thought that they couldn't live without were the very things that almost killed them. What an interesting connection. The necessities that they thought they couldn't live without were the very things weighing them down that almost took their lives. I love this uh, quote from Howard Hendricks. Hendricks said, the secret of concentration is elimination. The secret of concentration is elimination. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that he got that principle from Paul's words in Philippians. Uh, I think it's Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, this one thing I do, and then Paul tells us what it is. He focuses on his walk with Christ. That's basically what Paul is saying. But this one thing I do, the secret of concentration is elimination. You're in the balloon and it's sinking and you've got to start jet jettisoning, jettisoning the things that are weighing you down. Spiritual life is exactly the same. David prayed in Psalm 27. He said, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. One thing, again. The one thing for David is the same thing for Paul. It was the same thing for Christ. It's the same thing for us. We see it here even in the book of Haggai. And that is giving priority to our relationship with the Father above all other things. There is no other way 
that we will grow and no other way be able to keep focused. Probably one of my favorite parts of the book of Mark, and we, we looked at it obviously when we went through the book of Mark, but it's appropriate to mention here again, is one of the busiest days in Jesus' life when he was being just, uh, uh, people were just clawing at him for healing because finally someone's come along that can get rid of all their diseases. People were coming at him from everywhere and were demanding of him that he heal. And he could do it. He absolutely could have done it. But it says that after a busy day of, of healing, he got up the next morning and went out while it was still dark to a lonely place. He left the house, he left the people and went off by himself and he prayed. And then Peter and the other disciples came and said, Lord, everybody's looking for you. Well, of course they are. They want healing. It's time for another great day of Jesus' healing ministry. And Jesus said, let's go somewhere else so that I can preach, because that's what I came for. Oh, wow, you've got to know your priorities. To walk away from legitimate needs like that in order to do the one thing that God's called you to do Christ is a great model for us there. We can't do everything, but we can do one thing. And we have to learn to say no to the many things we cannot do so that we can say yes to the one or few things we must do. And one of those things, obviously, is our spiritual life. So my challenge to you and to me from Haggai, God's challenge to us, it's not my challenge, it's God's challenge to all of us, but my encouragement to you from this book is that you give priority to your spiritual life. The world isn't going to be your friend in this way. Make sure that when you're in the book, you're really in the book. You're not just checking a box that you've done it for the day, but you're opening it and you're saying, Lord, here's your servant. Speak to me. And then listen. Drink it in. Carry it with you throughout the day. Apply it to your life and allow him to begin to make, through your spiritual life, the priority and the blessing that he's intended for you to have. You know, a new year is a big deal, but, you know, we get over it pretty quick, don't we? It doesn't take long. There's nothing about a new year that's really new, except the calendar, or a new month, new day, except God's mercies. They're new every morning. Thank goodness. Pray with me. Father, how refreshing it is to read a portion of the Bible that we so seldom turn to, and yet its message is found throughout the Scripture and a wonderful reiteration of these truths that we so need to hear. In the time of Haggai, the the priority you would think would be so clear for the people to rebuild the temple, and yet they slipped into the same mindset of just business as usual and of taking their spiritual lives and putting it on the shelf. Father, help us to not do that because we struggle with the same thing. Let the morning time with you or the evening time or whatever time we've dedicated to you, let nothing else crowd that time. May it be a special time in which you pour into us your truth, in which we can pour out to you our confession and our worship, and in which we can continue to grow and deepen in our walk with you, because as we've seen, 
The quality of our spiritual life is indeed the quality of our whole life. We want to do it, Lord, so that you'll be pleased, so that you'll be glorified, and so that your purposes, your sovereign purposes in this world that screams at us may be accomplished. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.